Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've embarked upon a project to assemble several thousand sources of information about anxiety and depression. The goal is to create a guide that uh, will be a, a low-cost or no-cost resource for people that suffer from anxiety and depression. Uh, to find out more about the project, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Theo Fleury. He's a previous ice hockey player, and he's become an expert in the field of relational trauma, which we'll get into. So, Theo, thank you for coming. Yeah, my pleasure, man. If you would, tell me, um, so, okay, so you played hockey for a while. What's your background? How did it turn into, unfortunately, working with people that that have trauma? I, I would <laughs> guess you experienced it yourself, unfortunately, but what's your background? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up very poor as a kid, and, uh, you know, both my parents struggled with their own trauma, which uh, manifests itself into addiction as a coping mechanism. And uh, so I grew up in that environment. And then, uh, you know, as a way for me to cope, you know, I discovered hockey uh, at a very early age, which, you know, uh, allowed me not to be at home. It allowed me to be in an environment where, you know, I was getting some nurturing and being instilled with some great values. And then uh, as, an, uh, as a phenom adolescent hockey player, I ran into a coach that basically promised me a one-way ticket to the NHL and uh, over to two, over a two and a half year period, uh, I was raped by this man 150 times, which, oh my God. you know, terrible. which, which obviously, you know, caused me to, you know, have a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. And, you know, that turned into, you know, mental illness. Well, tell me, so what was the progression of feelings like? Did you feel shame at first or like, how did this progress to become, 
what you're saying is mental illness. Like what, what happened first and then next and next, what was the experience? like? Well, I, I believe that every single person on the planet who's experienced trauma and trauma, you know, it doesn't have to be as extreme as my trauma, but you know, trauma is what brings us into the mental health space and into uh, the addiction space, right? Because when we're traumatized, what happens is our nervous system, you know, basically, you know, gets thrown out of whack because of, you know, the amount of cortisol and adrenaline that is attached with, you know, experiencing whatever kind of trauma that is. And so, and what I know about cortisol is cortisol is like acid in your body. And so what I was left with was, you know, dealing with the aftermath, which was terror, which was fear, which was questioning a lot of things about myself. And and so, you know, I lived in a high stress environment. My body lived in a high stress environment. And, and so, you know, cortisol, which is a chemical in our body, you know, when we're in fear or we're stressed, you know, produces this chemical, which is, which is not good for our bodies. And so, mm. you know, this is, this is where I lived. The, mo- the majority of my life was in that state of, you know, fight or flight or, you know, uh, response. So my, um, my wife has, uh, you know, she had a very difficult childhood and it had made her hypervigilant. Yep. I mean, depression, stuff like that. One of the gifts of experiencing trauma is, you know, you have this built-in radar now, you know, to protect yourself. You know, I can, I can walk into a room and within probably a millisecond know who all the safe people are and know who all the unsafe people are. Really? What, what's yeah. How, yeah, what, what kind of feelings do you get from people that correlates with that? Well, it's just hypervigilance. It's just part of my system. I, it's like, it's like a, you know, involuntary reaction. Because when you grow up and you don't feel safe, you know, you develop this innate ability to know how to, how to be safe. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But I don't have this ability, it sounds like, like you do. So mm-hmm. what happens when you walk into a room? What kind of cues would tell you that someone's safe or not? I just know. I don't know how it happened, but I just know. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I've, I've met people where, you know... Or mm-hmm. I, there's been a few people I met where I literally sensed evil emanating from them, which was really weird. Yeah. But thank God it was incredibly rare, but yeah. I guess I don't have the ability that you've developed. Right. Well, it's, huh. you know, it's a survival mechanism, right? You know, I think. Yeah, it all, makes total sense. I think all of us, uh, you know, have that, have that ability, you know, mine's just a little more defined than everybody else because of my experience. What happened, um. After, you know, this, uh, a guy traumatized you X number of times when Mm -hmm. it was about to happen again, what was, what was different about your reaction and what was the breaking point? Well, any kind of sexual deviance is all related to power, right? So this guy had power over me. You know, I had a dream from probably the first time I ever put on a pair of skates that I wanted to eventually someday play in the National Hockey League. And so this guy held my whole entire career in the palm of his hands. And so there was a certain amount of power that was involved in in the situation, right? And so uh, I either go along with it or, you know, I, I create I create a conflict where, you know, 30 
some odd years ago when it happened, nobody was talking about sexual abuse. And so, you know, first and foremost, I knew I wouldn't be believed. And then secondly, I knew that that would be the end of my hockey career because I would be branded as a troublemaker and, you know, a liar and all this stuff. And so I just kept it inside. And it wasn't too long after that, that I discovered alcohol and drugs as a, you know, a coping mechanism to suppress the emotional pain and suffering that I was experiencing. And then, and like I said, you know, 30 years ago, nobody was talking about mental illness. And so what do you do? You know, I grew up in the suck it up era, right? Yep. And so there was no place to put this. Were you done with hockey or were you, was this yeah. person still um, running your life essentially, or were you finished? No, he left after the two years. I, I was with him for two and a half years. He got fired by the team that I was playing on. And then I didn't have any contact with him after that. But what I was oh, left, okay. but what I was left with was a lot of fucking bullshit, you know, right. that, that wasn't my fault that I had to deal with. Right. And, uh, 16, 17 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and my life, not because I wanted to die, but I was exhausted from living in emotional pain for the majority of my life. Right. But that was the catalyst that pushed me into, you know, a place of finally taking a look at it and finally, you know, putting in its, putting it in its rightful place, which was the past so that I could move on and live life on life's terms without substance, without addiction, all those things. Right. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Someone, I, I had gone to a office where they do ketamine infusions and on the wall they have uh, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And they say like everyone is kind of a mix of those three. Yep. And some people seem to have more of one than another. Are you able to characterize what what your particular bent was and what did that mean for you? Like, were you more anxious than depressed or were you more stressed than anxious? I have, I have all three. I have depression, I have anxiety, panic disorder, and PTSD. Right. All, all three. Yep. What, what kind of techniques have you figured out over the years to help yourself? I, would I, have, tried, like, you know, I have tried absolutely every single therapy known to mankind. So what did it take for you to heal yourself or you, you to feel better? Like, do you, are you just managing these problems still, or do you feel like you've truly overcome them? Well, I have a, you know, my, the way I coped before I had a toolbox full of addiction, right? Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, work, you know, all of it. And basically what I've done is I've taken out the addiction and I've replaced it with holistic practices. So meditation, yoga, breathing exercises, EMDR, uh, equine therapy, you know, you name it, you know, and uh, because I'm, you know, I'm a curious guy, I like to learn. And obviously, 
you know, being an advocate and an activist in the space of, you know, mental health and trauma and addiction, you know, I need to be educated. And the only Mm -hmm. way I know how to be educated is to actually try as many things as possible so that when people come to me, I can say, Hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried that? Da, 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 da. Right. So when you're talking the talk, you need to walk the walk as well. But you know, what's come out of it is, is, you know, healing, right. You know, and it's, and it's a three, you know, it's a three pronged thing, right. It's emotional, it's physical and it's spiritual healing. Right. And if you do something every day for your emotional health, your physical health, and your spiritual health, you're going to be okay. So did all these different uh, methodologies of treatment, did any of them work or did none of them work? All of them worked. All, together? All, all of them worked. All together, they all worked, right? And what it, okay. ha- what it allowed me to do is fill up my toolbox. Oh, because usually people say, I've tried everything and nothing works, but I guess, wait, I don't know if this is the right characterization. So each thing helped you maybe a few percent and all of them together got you to back yeah. to health. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Some modalities were better than others, but, you know, I think all of them together, yeah, definitely, you know, made a difference. And, but, you know, I don't understand, you know, the comment I've tried everything and I'm, and I'm not better. What do people mean when they say that versus you? Like, again, you mean something different, but what have you observed people mean when they say that? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, trying and actually doing the work are two different things. And with me, you know, I do the work, which means, so you think, um, which means, which means I get to a place of vulnerability where I actually talk about, you know, it it doesn't bother me anymore to tell people I was raped 150 times. Like it doesn't, doesn't Mm -hmm. bother me, you know, doesn't have any, trigger or emotion and not, nothing is attached to that you know and that means That's i've good. done that means i've done the work that you need to do right like what if i were to say some people try everything other yeah. people work at everything yeah and the people that work at everything are the ones that get results yeah absolutely it's uh, the old saying the harder i work the luckier i get right therapy is hard work like it's hard work it's uncomfortable it's not fun but it's necessary in the process if you want to if you want to heal. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, if you were to go back in time to when you first started looking into all these modalities, would you rearrange them? Would you not no. do certain ones or do certain ones first? No, because my spirituality tells me that God has a plan for me and has always had a plan for me. And these things present themselves when I am ready to do the work. So, um. I mean, in your journey back to mental and, you know, mental and physical health, um, or really mental health, what were the bumps along the way that maybe looking back in hindsight, like, would you have cleared them away or you did it in exactly the right way that you should have done it? There's no perfect way to do this, but there are also 10,000 different ways to heal, right? And are you willing to try everything possible to heal? Yeah, I'm one of those people. But yeah, you, you always go into into new experiences, you know, with a with this certain amount of fear. But mm-hmm. how do you get through fear? Well, you walk through it. And, you know, when you get to the other side, and you look back and you go, you know, that wasn't as bad as, you know, my my head made it out to be, which tells me, you know, there has to be a certain amount of willingness, you know, 
on people's part. And, you know, part of the process of healing is you're going to sit in, in, you know, negative emotions and negative feelings, and, and it's not going to feel great, but it's part of the process. And I think that's why people go into therapeutic processes and they stop because, because they're uncomfortable sitting in those uncomfortable emotions. In my experience is, you know, just go the distance, right? Go the distance. And I guarantee at the end, at the end of the experience of sitting in negative emotions, like that's why, you know, addiction is a part of mental illness is because when we can't cope with the emotions and the negative feelings and negative emotions, we're going to go to our coping mechanisms so that we don't have to sit in those uncomfortable feelings. But true healing happens when you sit in negative emotions and negative feelings. What's an example of that, of sitting in them, like you described? Well, sadness, frustration, anger. Yeah, let's say I felt uh, really sad and hopeless. Like, yep. what would I do normally versus what would I do to sit in it and to help myself through it? Like, what? Can you put words to that on how someone would do it the right versus the wrong way, let's say? Well, the right way is to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. You know, that's the right way to do it and say, you know, I'm really sad today. And you talk it out, right? That's the only way you're going to release that emotion is by talking about it. And the longer Mm, you sit and the longer you sit in it, you know, the harder it is. Because who wants to sit in sadness? And, but but everybody does. Why? Because there's stigma attached to negative emotions. I can't talk about this stuff because people don't want to hear it, right? And therein lies yeah. why we have, you know, why mental illness or mental health challenges is the biggest epidemic on the planet is because we haven't created safe spaces for people to talk about, in, about negative emotions or negative events that happen in our life. People don't want to hear it. I can see, like, I, you know, I went through many years ago, you know, it was over a relationship, which it was what it was, but, you know, I was depressed for a bit and I could see pretty quickly, like, you know, people don't want to be around you because they just don't want to hear it after a certain point, you know? So how do you help yourself and reach out to people, but not burden them and constantly be like, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, and just kind of suck the life out of them. How do you still be a father mother, friend, lover, whatever to people, but deal with this as well. Yeah. Well, relationships are hard. You know, there has to be a certain amount of vulnerability and there also has to be compassion. There also has to be empathy. There also has to be forgiveness. And those, those are things we're not taught. We're taught to suppress emotions, suppress feelings, you know, all the time, because it's, you know, it's just part of, you know, sort of the world that we live in. But the people who get vulnerable, get, you know, honest, you know, are the people that make the biggest strides. Because if you don't release that stuff, it it, it ends up getting stored in your body, right? And, but what, and if and I you met you it, years it, ago when you were in the middle of this and I, yep. you know, and you would have met the well, angry, you would have met the angriest guy on the planet. Wow. What would you have said to me, though, if I said, come on, Theo, you know, you, you're right or. What if I tried to help you either in a good way or I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for help. How how would you have reacted? You guess just, you would have pushed me away or whoever. Yeah. I I would have blown you off because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to deal with what I needed to deal with. Right. So what do you do with someone you care about that you could see they're having a problem, they're suffering 
but they're saying, leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. Or they're pushing you out. What can you do? Well, I think the first thing I would say is, uh, you know, I see that you're struggling and I just want you to know that when you're ready to get some help that I'm, I'm going to be here for you. That's all you can do. Here's a great example. So addicts and alcoholics and sex addicts and you name it, gamblers, you know, we're really good at collecting enablers because the more enablers we have, the longer our behavior can last. But eventually we make all the enablers sick because of our behavior. And so they end up having to go get help for themselves. And then eventually we're left with no enablers and then we're left to our own defenses, which then it helps us hit the proverbial rock bottom. And oh, so people will, it makes sense. They'll push away, let's say the healthier people yeah. and they'll hang out with the ones that don't, don't push them and don't question them. And but yeah. those people themselves fall out. And then at some point you're alone and you're at rock bottom. Yeah. That's how it works. You know, that's, I, I see it almost every day in my practice. And what I do is the, the people that eventually come to me are, are at a rock bottom place or, you know, families of enablers call me and we, we do an intervention. We do an intervention on the attic, but also I'm also suggesting to the enablers that they need to go get help too, so that everybody can go their separate ways, go get healthy and then come back, repair the relationship. So you have to wait till someone hits rock bottom before they're willing to listen to you or because you have had problems yourself. Well, I, I, I know people, I know people that are ready for help and I know people that aren't ready for help. But what do you do if you're in relation with someone or, you know, someone that's not ready for help, but they're really making it very difficult for you to do what you do. Then what I said, then, a, I, then I put, then I put boundaries in because if I have boundaries, then I'm not going to get hurt. Oh, what, what are some examples of good boundaries that you've heard from yourself or other people? Well, everybody's boundaries are different. I know they're all different, but any, any examples of a boundary that worked well? If uh, you do this, if you continue to do this, I will do this. I won't have anything to do with you. Makes sense. Which is, which is kind of harsh, but you know, I'm the one that continually gets hurt because your behavior. So, you know, um, I need to put in healthy boundaries so I don't get hurt. That's basically what boundaries are. And it's all based yeah, it on, and it's all based on behavior. You know, earlier on, it, in a way, you're like a superhero because you went through a terrible thing and you now have enhanced abilities. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the hypervigilance. Do you think that's, that's instrumental in you helping to, or knowing when someone needs help versus not? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a certain amount of intuitiveness that I have. There's a certain amount of hypervigilance I have. There's, you know, there's things that are unexplainable you know, that makes me sort of a great uh, helper in this space is, you know, I can see stuff, but you know, the bottom line is, is if the person doesn't want help, there's nothing you can do to change that. They have to experience and hit, you know, the proverbial rock bottom, whatever that looks like on their own. And yeah, no, and that's sense. and that's the frustrating part of of you know doing this work is meeting with people who I know need help. So, um, but but they're just not. What ready. does your practice look like? Like, what 
you know, when do you help people? How do you help them? What's, what's the nuance of it? Well, I'm an author, so I write books on the subject. I'm a speaker. I'm a facilitator. I'm a, uh, a life coach, all those things. So, you know, most, I would say most of the requests that come in are not from the actual people who need help, but they're from parents and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles who see their loved one going down the wrong path. Yeah, it must be incredibly hard, you know, when the person's not ready to receive help. And you yeah, see but them I tell, but I tell them, I just tell them straight out, you're not ready for help. And when you're ready, you know, I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. How do people react when you say that? Do they go, okay. Or do they, does it stop them in their tracks? Yeah. It stops them in their tracks because it's the first realization that, you know, my time is valuable, right? My time is valuable and I'm not interested in trying to convince you that you need help. What does your practice look like though? When someone comes to you, like what are the, some of the activities you do in your practice? Well, I'll do an assessment to see if they actually want help, you know? And uh, if there's even a little bit of willingness, yeah, then I'll work with them. And then, you know, it's just getting them to come up with their own plan, right? Not my plan, their plan. And then me holding them to account to the plan that they made for themselves. Are there certain traumas that are much more difficult to treat than others? No, trauma is trauma. Emotional pain is emotional pain. There is no. No, that's good. It would would be terrible. There is no bar. There is no bar. Everybody feels emotional pain exactly the same way. It's not about the experience. It's about it's about finding the gift in the trauma that allows them to overcome the you know, emotional damage that they've experienced. And a lot of people don't see it as a gift. I see my, I see my struggle as a gift because without, the, what, without, the, without the experience, I'm not talking to Richard Jacobs on, on zoom right now. He wouldn't have a, a clue who I was. If I didn't, oh, talk I, about, I thought if I the, didn't, um, if I didn't I talk about a level, like the gift was the hypervigilance. The gift was, you know, being able to read situations. Yeah, the, 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 gift, the gift is resilience. Adversity teaches us and gives us resilience. And then once we have resilience, there isn't anything we can't get through. Okay. Okay. So do you tell that to people? Like, look, yeah, you've been absolutely, through hell. absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've been through hell. You made it. So therefore like you've, yeah, you've, you've been more resilient than most folks. So celebrate that, I guess, or at yeah. least take comfort in that. That's the gift. That's why God gives us these challenges. Because he needs he needs us to have resilience, and that's a pretty cool way of looking at it. I like and, it. And, and the people right now who are struggling the most with COVID and lockdowns and all those people don't have resilience. And that's why they're struggling. Very you know, interesting. If you experience trauma and you're still here, you have resilience. Because if you didn't have resilience, you wouldn't be here. That's really cool. That that I could see stopping someone in their tracks early on too. And yeah, like, and wow. I also tell people. You know, do you have a time machine? And they look at me like, does this guy ask me if I have a time machine? I go, because you can't change the past. But you can oh, certainly cool. you can certainly change the future. I would and think that that's a, a very empowering thing to tell people like, you're here. That means you have resilience. That's that's really cool. Yeah. This stuff isn't rocket science. You know, we, we, we tend to 
make it like that, but it's just simple relationship. It's connecting with somebody on a spiritual level that can take you through the process of healing. You know, you mentioned a couple of times that you have faith, but what happens when you deal with someone that is an atheist or they haven't even considered that, or they're mad at, at, you know, at God, uh, everybody gets triggered by the word God. I don't subscribe to the white bearded guy in the sky. I don't subscribe to that theory, but what is spirituality to me? Spirituality is a relationship. The relationship I have with myself is the most important one, but it's also the one that I, that I neglected the most at the beginning of this process, right? And so if I have a great relationship with myself, I love myself, take care of myself, eat well, sleep well, exercise, go to therapy, do meditation. Then if I have a good relationship with myself, how do you think all my other relationships are going to be? Great. They're going to be the same. But if I'm angry, resentful, pissed off, that's what I'm going to project. And who wants to have a relationship with a guy who's fucking angry and pissed off all the time? Yeah, no, it's true. I've, right. you know, there's days where I've been agitated and every, you know, I go to the coffee shop. I think the person is a jerk. What's probably me being a jerk. And I try not to bring it home. Mm-hmm. But in days when I feel really good, all my relationships are better. So I realize like I affect everyone around me and I have to be yeah. careful not to affect them negatively. It always comes back to you. All of this stuff always comes back to you. Right has absolutely nothing to do with anything else other than, you know, am I spiritually well, am I emotionally well, am I physically well? That's what it's all about. And you control that. Not anybody else. You control. You control how you feel. And you get to choose to be nice, kind, compassionate, empathetic, or you choose to be an asshole. That has nothing to do with anybody other than yourself. But what if someone feels totally out of control and their emotions are in control of them and you say that to them, wouldn't they push that idea away? Like, how could that be? I, I feel this. I feel that. I'm, I'm filled with anxiety. I'm filled with this. What do, you, what do you say to someone like that? Well, you need to do more work. You need to figure out why you feel this way. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. What kind of uh, emotional problems are you seeing lately from people is it has it changed over the time you've been doing therapy with people or no, you know, again what are the it's just comments? basic stuff it's either depression anxiety you know the more extreme people you know ptsd ocd personality disorder you know those need a little bit more compassion and empathy but you know general anxiety and general depression it's it's a choice you you need to do acquire tools that help you get out of it. And they're simple things, you know, it's not, you know, sit down and, you know, do a breathing meditation for 10 minutes. I guarantee you'll feel better, you know, same with anxiety, same with, and then PTSD, you know, you need to find modalities that are going to help you get rid of the the movie that continually plays in your head. That's what PTSD is. Oh, I don't, I don't know much about PTSD. What what movie is playing in people's heads? Like, what are people the trauma, experience with that? The trauma movie, right? Okay, like someone they know when war was blown up and they keep yeah. seeing that over and over. Yeah. And for me, it was, you know, laying in the cot in the dark room waiting to be molested. That was my, that was my post-traumatic stress, mm. which happened right. every night, right? Because I got to go to sleep every night. Right. So, so how do you get that image out of your head? Well, it takes work. It takes special therapy to get rid of that. But I also know that the that the brain is, you know, 
neuro, neuroplastic, which means I can change. I can rewire my brain. I guess people have to hit rock bottom in order to seek help. Or have you seen that some people will no, seek not, it before they necess- get that bad? Yeah, not necessarily everybody needs to hit rock bottom. You know, I think we we put too much emphasis on that, you know. But, you know, like I said, uh, you know, that's that's something that's out of our control. I wish, you know, if I could, you know, if I could go out and, and, you know, just get people not to hit rock bottom, you know, I'd be a billionaire. Everybody's on their own path. Everybody has their own plan. And, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing about lessons is, you know, the universe will keep putting a lesson in front of us until we get it. And sometimes we're not ready for the lesson and it goes, but it comes back. So, um, do people, is there any resistance in your practice, do people just say, I'm ready, and they come to you? Or do you have to do any convincing? And if you have to, that means they're not ready? What's it like for a new customer yeah, to start working with you? Everybody's different, you know? Everybody's different in their process, right? Some people get it right away. Some people, you know, are slow, you know, or f- afraid. Um, and other people are, you know, resistant to it, you know? You know, that's where I have to be, you know, I just have to be willing. I have to be patient sometimes. I have to be more loving. Sometimes I have to be more firm, you know. It all depends on on the person. But I guarantee you, when the light bulb goes off, you got them forever. They're not going to leave. What advice do you have to someone that's living with someone that, you know, has significant depression or anxiety or PTSD and life's not easy? It's really difficult. Yeah. You know, living with this person or knowing this person, what can you, what are some techniques to help fix well, things? The bottom line is the only person you can change is yourself. Like I said, yeah. when, when the person doesn't want help, you can fucking jump up and down and scream and yell and do everything you can. If that person doesn't want help, they don't want help. And there's nothing you can do. I know it's a harsh way to put it, but it's the most honest way of putting it as well. Go look after yourself. Well, what do you do? Like, what, let's say you're, uh, I don't know, you're, married to someone for a few years and they're now you see they're just like incredibly depressed and anxious and this and that and they're just mean to you every day and they're you know they're just down all the time and you never know who you're going to get it's like Jekyll and Hyde what what do you do in that situation well it's it I see that you're struggling I see that you having trouble with life right now I just want you to know that I'm here to help not here to enable I'm here to help and I suggest that you maybe should go talk to somebody because I'm not, you know, I don't have the skill to be able to help you through whatever you need help with. But I'm also going to go get some help so that I can better manage your, you know, your illness. It's as simple as that. Okay. Like you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And that's what I see in the mental health space is, well, first of all, There's so much stigma attached to mental health that prevents people from getting the help that they need because they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of ridicule. They're afraid of, you know, the fingers being pointed at them. You know, they're getting messages like, why don't you just get over it? Right. So, so that's the stigma attached to wanting help. Right. And so, you know, I'm an advocate and activist in this space. What do I do all day long? I fight stigma. That's the biggest challenge mm-hmm. I have is fighting stigma. So stigma from what the the people in that person's life that are uh, no the the, the space of mental by. illness has 
the worst stigma attached to it. And that's what causes people not to get help. What, what are some of the reasons people say that uh, they don't want to get help? Is it they feel embarrassed or they're not yeah. really confronted? Yeah. Or, or what is it? They're embarrassed. They're, you know, they're afraid of judgment. It's, it's all fear-based stuff. Okay. And we have not created a space in society where mental health is 100% fully accepted as, as the biggest epidemic on the planet. It's not acknowledged that way. And, you know, we've, we've done a really poor job creating safe spaces and safe environments. Right. And there's not, and to be honest with you, there's not enough skill on the planet to deal with the amount of mental illness. There's not enough skill. What have you seen since, uh, you know, the Corona stuff happened? Has it accelerated and gotten a lot worse? Or yeah, like a hundred times worse. Why? Because you locked us down. You've limited my movement. You've taken away church. You've taken away community. You've taken away all those things. And so what am I left with? I'm left with sitting in my house inside of my own head. And in the mental health space, that's the worst place you can be is inside your head. That's why, that's why suicides are spiking. That's why opioid addiction is spiking. That's why, you know, mental illness is spiking is because the basic thing that we need is relationship. And if you don't have relationship, you're going to struggle. It's just as simple as that. Have you um, worked with people in different countries that have been locked down for different periods of time or just people in general that have and, is yeah, there a, a it's, point it's, at which someone's, someone's like, this is a new source of trauma for them, or is it always a new source of trauma? Well, everybody has, everybody has trauma. Yep. And, now, and now COVID has added another layer of trauma. So, yeah, that's why it is at a, a crisis level, is because, like I said, the mental health system on the whole entire planet is, has been run over because, like I said, there's not enough skill, there's not enough people for the amount of help that needs to happen. And I don't know, if, and I don't know, I don't know if that's by design, but you know, for example, I live, I live in a province in Canada called Alberta and uh, they gave a hundred million dollars to mental illness. And uh, you know, we have, let's see, we have 4 million people that live in this province, divide that by a hundred million. And basically that's $4 Per person to go get help. Can you get help for your mental illness for four dollars? Will a ther- will a therapist see you for four dollars? No, no. Yeah, no. I don't mean to laugh at it, but yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's fucking therapy. ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. But yeah. you know, we're giving a hundred million dollars to mental health. <laughs> well, it's not going to do anything. Yeah, it sounds good, right? But it's uh, spread out over nothing. Yeah, yeah. Theo, um, where can you help people? Do they have to be in Canada or Alberta, or can they be worldwide? Like, yeah, worldwide. So, so during COVID, I created a program called Trauma Transformation, which is on my website, theoflurry.life is my website. And the people who take uh, my course, I run a, uh, I run a group, a therapy group online twice a month. As soon as you sign up for the program, it automatically automatically gives you access to our group that we do. And so we have like 200 members and we meet twice a month. And uh, and it's an amazing group of people who, you know, we're all healing together. We're all sharing. We're all vulnerable. We're all, 
you know, working on our stuff. And it's, uh, it's amazing to be, to be a part of it. And I'm honored that I get to co-facilitate a bunch of people who are really, you know, looking to, to overcome whatever they need to overcome. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, do you feel like, uh, this group therapy helps people heal a lot faster than just one-on-one type situations? It's the most effective, cheapest kind of therapy on the planet. Oh, nice. Okay. Cause it doesn't cost anything. All it costs you is your time. Show up. Show up. Oh, you, oh do, you, do you charge for this or is it free? It's a very small nominal fee just for uh, administration. But other than that, it doesn't cost much. Okay. And one, one more time that URL again, please. Theoflurry.life. Again, flurry is F-L-E-U-R-Y. Yep. And then I have, you know, I have a foundation here in Calgary too, where we do you know, we do group therapy uh, twice a month as well. And I co-facilitate that as well. So. Oh, excellent. Well, very good. Theo, thank you for coming and uh, for your raw, brutal honesty and uh, your, your tough love. I appreciate <laughs> that. Listeners will like it too, you know? Well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's tough love with a lot of compassion and empathy in it. Right. You know, I grew up in the tough love era. Right. And uh, as much as caused some damage in my life, I, I really think it, it can be effective too, you know, done properly, but it is love, right? It is love. It is connection. It is, you know, sometimes you need tough love. Other times you don't need it. You need more compassion, you need more empathy, you know, these kind of things, right? So I've had a lot of experience and I know what works and I know what doesn't work. And so I stick to with what works and, and nine times out of 10, it's just conversation and connection. Excellent. Well, what's, again, the, what's, the, what's the opposite of, conne- of addiction? Connection. The opposite of addiction is connection? Yeah. Huh. Get connected. All right. Well, very good. Theo, uh, a lot of wisdom here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying as much as I normally would because I'm like, hmm, hmm. You're giving me a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot yeah. of good bumper, bumper sticker type uh, things to yeah. think about. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, I've been, I've been in this space for a long time and I know what works and I know what doesn't work. So. And it's the people, you know, it's the people that I work with that have educated me. The people that I'm trying to help, you know, have helped me more than I've helped them. And I think that's, that's important too. Well, Theo, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.